Welcome to It's Your Dime, a straight talk interview series presented by Shift Gold. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. In this episode, I'll be talking with author and political activist Jose Nino about the failing of socialism. Jose was born in Venezuela and his family experienced the impacts of socialism firsthand. He's the author of two books, including How Socialism Destroyed Venezuela. In this episode of It's Your Dime, Jose and I talk about whether or not Venezuela has real socialism, the economic history of that country, the economic and moral failings of socialism, democratic socialism in the United States, and why so many young people are enamored by socialism. Jose Nino, welcome to It's Your Dime. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Mike. How are you? I'm outstanding. Appreciate you coming on the show. We're going to talk a little bit about socialism and economics. Before we dig into the meat, though, I have to ask you, this is the first question that I ask everybody who comes on this show. Uh, It's basically, who are you and why are you on my show? So this is your chance to just kind of give a little bit of your background and and, uh, let the audience know uh, kind of who you are. Well, I was originally born in Venezuela, but I came to the States when I was young in the late 90s. And I've been involved with like the so-called liberty movement ever since I was in high school, just reading and educating myself. And then I got involved with certain university groups when I was in college. And I've been an email marketer for a gun rights lobby. And now I do a lot of freelance writing and email marketing on my own. And I'm here just mostly to talk about socialism based on my years of research and the content that I've produced over the last few years. I've specifically talked about economic interventionism and how it's not only immoral, but completely destructive for countries that actually want to grow and prosper. Yeah, absolutely. You've written quite a bit for the Mises Institute and other publications and uh, everybody should get on your email list. Uh, you, you put out some some pretty darn good emails. You can tell you're an email marketer, but uh, the the content of that stuff is excellent. So uh, we'll make sure that we give people links so that they can do that at the uh, on the show notes page. Um, so I want to start off talking a little bit about your home country um, and you know the economic chaos there is pretty well documented. Uh, we've we've seen news reports, empty store shelves and uh, you know, just all kinds of uh, chaos going on there. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people, when you when you point this out and you say, this is the end result of socialism, you're going to get the argument, well, Mike, that's not real socialism. How do you respond to that? I mean, is it not real socialism? I mean, or, or, or are people kind of being snowed by this uh, mantra? Well, Venezuela is a highly interventionist economy. It may not be exactly like the Soviet Union in terms of how extensive the intervention is, but it's so interventionist in terms of private property confiscations, easy money, and its price controls that it hits many of the criteria of socialism. And thus, it produces a lot of the results, such as hyperinflation, shortages, and complete economic dislocations. What you see in Venezuela is the result of deliberate policymaking. This is not just some coincidence or natural disaster. It is a man-made political disaster that was created 
over multiple decades of bad policy from the social democrats that were in control from 1958 to 1998 and accelerated by the current government and the predecessor hugo chavez so for the past 50 years as i have written extensively about venezuela has had very suboptimal economic policy now it's just paying the price yeah you know it's interesting because uh years ago during the boom when oil prices were really high and and uh venezuela was reaping the benefits of that uh people were saying oh chavez you know this proves socialism works and uh, it's funny, those same people are now, oh, no, wait a minute, that was, you know, back then it was real socialism because it proved it worked, but uh, now not so much. Can you kind of give a little bit of the overview of the trajectory of the Venezuelan economy for people who might not be familiar with, with because I think there's a lot of myths out there. A lot of people think, well, it's just because the, their economy crashes because the oil prices fell or, you know, some, something simple like that. Can you kind of give an overview of what's happened there? Well, you have to understand the economic history, Mike to understand why like Venezuela is collapsing. Historically speaking, Venezuela from the early 20th century up until the 1970s had a relatively free market economy, very little regulation, relatively low taxation, no nationalized oil industry. And, and actually, it was a latecomer to the central banking game, Venezuela's central bank was not established until the late 1930s. This allowed it to become very prosperous. In fact, Venezuela was one of like the richest countries on a per capita GDP basis in the 1950s. Europeans were actually moving there on net. But what happened was from the 1970s onward, Venezuela first nationalized its oil industry in 1975 and then that nationalization was accompanied by a lot of other government intrusions such as the government bought a majority stake in its central bank and that effectively politicized the central bank and made it easier for presidents to pursue easy money policies just to give you an example venezuelan millennials have never seen a year of single-digit inflation. The last time inflation was below 10% was in 1983. So the currency has been debasing for the past 30-plus years. Wow. And then you saw also really limited degrees of price controls and exchange controls in the 80s and 90s because – in the 70s, after the nationalization of oil, the government went on huge spending binges to try to finance all these welfare programs, and eventually economic reality hit it in the face, and then they had to devalue the currencies, and the political class just tried to double down with the economic control. They also tried some free market reforms here and there, but they didn't go far enough, and they never tamed inflation. That was ultimately what kind of destroyed Venezuela's hopes of getting on free market path. For example, in 1996, inflation was like 100%. And I remember this because my dad had to close down his small business there because of like the inflationary adjustments and all that. And by 1998, Venezuela, the average Venezuelan on a per capita GDP basis was poorer than the average Venezuelan in 1958. So logically, it made sense that a demagogue like Hugo Chavez at the time 
could exploit that situation, especially the more impoverished sectors of the Venezuelan economy, and rise his way to the top. And from that point forward, he actually doubled down on the failed policies before and added like a tyrannical twist. So the moral of the story is that what we're seeing in Venezuela is just basically the previous interventions, but on steroids. But also you also you have the fact that the government now is directly expropriating private property, is cranking out the printing presses like no other, and it now has like wide wide scale price controls, which effectively destroy any type of price signaling mechanism in the economy, which results in shortages. It's economics 101. It's a country that's violated practically all laws of basic economics. Yeah, you can't do that without consequences. It's That's the thing that people have to wrap their heads around. You hit on a couple of things that I think are important to highlight. Uh, for one, you know, it's it's like a snowball rolling downhill. You know, uh, bad interventions beget more bad interventions, and then eventually it, it you know, it's like the, uh, the, the top eventually flies off of it. And another thing you hit, actually, I just wrote an article today um, summarizing a podcast that Peter Schiff did uh, I think it was on Friday, and he was talking about the fact how the, how the U.S. Federal Reserve basically enables uh, the U.S. government to get away with spending more money and doing more big programs than it would otherwise be able to do if it actually let interest rates settle at a normal rate. If uh, you know, if the government actually had to pay for all of the borrowing it was doing, it would push interest rates up. Uh, there would be consequences that would be felt by the population, uh, and and that might you know create some some impetus for political change, but because of the central bank, because of the money printing, which we've seen to the nth degree in Venezuela, but we're seeing it here in the United States too, it allows these politicians to get away with uh, spending more money than they otherwise could. Uh, and it can go for a, quite a long time before people realize the problem that, that it's in. And you know, people are, I think, a little bit naive, and, and I'd be interested to see if you agree with me to think, well, that could never happen in the United States. Uh, I think it absolutely could happen. I think we're on that same trajectory. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, the U.S. is a very advanced economy, and it's obviously had like a multiple decade head start over a country, say, like Venezuela. Right. But the same economic principles apply. Eventually, the chickens are going to come home to roost, and you have a out-of-control welfare state, and then foreign policy interventionism that just puts our budget in a constant deficit. We are, You already see the CBO projecting that our deficits are only going to get bigger, mm. much bigger than expected. And with a lot of boomers now retiring, and as more people retire, the entitlement spending is going to become a big thing. And you might see for the first time like inflation that comes close to double digits, which is something that's almost unheard of in Western industrialized countries. But I think that the kind of mindset that, oh, this can't happen here is pretty dangerous because, yeah, it might not be happening in the present, but when you look at future generations, it's very possible. And it's the worst thing you could do because you're putting your posterity on the hook for all the bad actions you take you took in the present. And I think that's absolutely immoral. Mm-hmm. And the countries like Venezuela serve as like a wake up call because Venezuela was very developed at its peak and now it's a complete mess and it serves as a wake up call to a lot of these countries, especially the US and Europe, that eventually the welfare state's going to run out of money 
and the way that that money is going to ultimately be raised is via taxation or the most insidious form of taxation, inflation. Right. And that's just going to erode our living standards and create even more problems further down the line. So what do you say to people who will give you this? Well, you know, we don't want Venezuela. We want Sweden <laughs> or we want Denmark uh, because, the, you know, in, in, and I think in a lot of people's minds, uh, those are the, the crown jewel of socialism. And I, I think it's important to note, and you use this term, when we're talking about socialism, we're not really talking about it in the in the technical economic definition of complete government control of the means of production. We're really talking more about economic interventionism to a very high level. So I kind of want to make that distinction. But um, so what do, what do you say to people? You know, well, we don't want Venezuela. We want Sweden. Well, even countries like Sweden, they're still relatively market oriented. That's how they got rich. They didn't get rich by establishing a welfare state. That's just basically putting the cart before the horse. I mean, tell that to a third world African country, like become a welfare state and then you become rich. They don't even have a capital stock to exploit. You have to have that to even plunder. And even like in the Scandinavian case, like Sweden, they had to implement certain reforms in the 90s, which they were able to do in a relatively successful manner to stave off like a potential fiscal implosion. And now to this day, they still have problems because they've become a welfare magnet for refugees that are not assimilating. And frankly, they, they are a sign that even mixed economies, they come with social problems. They come with a lot of issues that will turn up in a matter of decades. So I don't really want to play that game. If anything, the discussion should be is how much we can get the state out of our lives and let the market and civil society handle this stuff. But unfortunately, that's not what is currently being discussed. Well, we hear a lot about what's going on in Venezuela, but you wrote an interesting article a couple of months ago. Uh, I think it was back in June that uh, I'll link to it on the show notes page, but it talked about the situation in Cuba and uh, things aren't a whole lot better over there. Can you kind of give an overview of what uh, those folks are dealing with? Well, <clears throat> Cuba is, was like obviously the first successful, if you will, Marxist takeover in the Western Hemisphere. That's more of the traditional 20th century Marxist garrison state where under Fidel Castro and now his brother, Raul, they've essentially taken over the island and have turned it into a tropical gulag. There are no real private property rights, tons of economic controls. And the article I specifically wrote about is how they're, they're rationing a lot of basic goods and services, just like in Venezuela. And that's mostly the result of the fact that there are aren't many stable forms of property rights. They have they have price controls and other mechanisms of state intervention that prevent a functioning marketing market economy from taking place on the island. So you have all these problems emerging. It's a result of deliberate policymaking. It's not a coincidence. And it's just another example of what's going on. But unlike the Venezuelan case, this was not established through a democracy, through democratic means, but nevertheless, regardless of whether economic interventionism is approved by a majority vote or a vote by bureaucrats, 
things. And this is regardless of the type of like political arrangement or procedures. If you have interventionist economics, you're going to get the nasty results of interventionist economics. Right. Yeah. It's like gravity. You know, if you jump off of a, of a high building, uh, you can wish away gravity all you want to, but ultimately it's going to pull you to the ground. And I, people don't understand. They think economics is, is somebody's opinion or, or or something like that. And it's not. I mean, these they're supply and demand or economic laws. When you start messing with prices, you're, you're messing with, with very fixed things that you need to signal uh, how to move things through an economy. And when you start messing with that stuff, uh, to any degree, you're going to have problems. And the greater the intervention, the greater the, the problems you're going to get. Uh, you kind of you kind of touched on something that I wanted to to ask you about. You know, we're seeing a lot of interest in the United States right now in, in democratic socialism. And uh, I think some people think that this is different. You know, democratic. So you put democratic in front of it. It makes it sound nice and, and fuzzy. Is there really any difference between the proposals of, of people like AOC and Bernie Sanders and, and what we see in these more uh, you know, traditionally socialist countries? Well, the left in the West has definitely pivoted to other areas that 20th century socialism has not really touched. You see a lot more focus on multiculturalism and, and identity politics, right. but let's not beat around the bush. This all is going to be enforced by the state, AKA the gun in the room. So it's gonna be a, some different form of coercion. There's definitely more of a focus on like free education and these top-down environmentalist programs that are just gonna wreck small businesses and make things much more expensive for the working classes. Politically connected organizations and big businesses that can shoulder the cost will be in the clear, but the rest, are going to be in jeopardy. And I still think that regardless of like the differences of these kinds of leftist permutations of economic control, they're still, I think, are immoral and economically suboptimal. And they should be argued against based on their merits. And I think that at the end of the day, all of the proposals that Bernie Sanders wants and like his political goals, it can be achieved through voluntary action on the market and civil society. But when you get the state involved, you just come with a whole host of unintended consequences and just another vicious cycle of more government control that will happen well past when Sanders or whoever is in office is in power. You mentioned a couple times that you view this not only as, uh, you know, pragmatically and economically problematic, but also as immoral. Can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Why do you say that this kind of intervention is immoral? Well, I'm of the opinion that free individuals know what's like best in terms of how they economically and socially organize their lives. And when you have people from far away, say like DC, telling them what to do and threatening them with jail at with jail time or whatever i think that's absolutely immoral i think a lot of people don't realize that not complying with these types of top-down experiments there's going to be real political consequences and you see this with how huge our bureaucratic state is and how there's reports that like people commit on average are committing on average four felonies a day because of just how expansive our administrative state has become I think that's absolutely immoral. 
law should emerge like naturally, like spontaneous from the bottom up, not from a bureaucratic dictate. And I don't like the idea of people who have no idea of what my, my life or the locality around me is like telling me what to do. And I think that a lot of the problems we see today is that we have a detached political and bureaucratic class that is just so out of touch with the rest of the country and thinks that it can just magically craft legislation to fix our problems. Yeah. So really, the ultimately, the problem is the violence and force and coercion that's behind uh, all of these government intervention. And I've said this before, and people people frown at me, but I, I haven't been haven't anybody that's been able to prove me wrong. Every law that's passed by a government is enforced at the barrel of a gun. Um, you know, even something as as innocent as a seatbelt law. Ultimately, there's a gun behind the seatbelt law, and people, well, no, that's ridiculous. Well, you know, if, if you don't wear your seatbelt and you get a ticket and then you don't pay the ticket and then they suspend your driver's license and then they catch you driving on a suspended driver's license and uh, you know you resist being arrested well they're going to shoot you you know so you take every law to its logical conclusion and and ultimately there's a gun there and uh, i think you're absolutely right when you say that uh, this type of intervention is immoral and uh, you know not only is it utilitarian from a utilitarian standpoint, better to allow markets to emerge. Uh, I think a moral and civil way to have a society is for people to interact voluntarily with each other and not have you know, some guy with a bullhorn standing over them and yelling at them and telling them what to do. So I absolutely agree with you on that point. But you know, we're seeing a, a, a big increase, I think, in the popularity of uh, socialism, particularly democratic socialism, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders is uh, is a popular figure now. AOC, and uh, you talked about this. Uh, I, I believe it was in an email, email about the fact that young people, you know, particularly the millennial generation, uh, is is quickly embracing uh, socialism and, and economic interventionism. Why do you think that is? Why are young people so enamored with this? Well, you have a multi-decade process of the left co-opting practically every institution from education to general culture where you're just constantly being pounded with some form of pro-government interventionist propaganda and then you also have a very feckless right that is not effective in terms of offering a radical free market alternative mm -hmm. to this. So these factors create an environment where we have a paradigm where there's just not much of a choice for people who want free market ideas. So by default, millennials and younger co and their younger cohorts are going to be very much indoctrinated by this propaganda. That said, the Generation Z below have kind of pushed back against that because they've been raised a lot by social media and the internet, which has allowed for more dissenting ideas to take hold. But I think that what we've seen here is that previous generations have kind of dropped the ball and have let these institutions get taken over and have not really offered up much of an alternative. I am somewhat optimistic especially as technology 
grows and information quote unquote democratizes that you'll see more free market ideas and dissenting views. Like for example, with Venezuela, we have a real time experiment taking place of socialist failure that people can see all over the world. And a lot of people have been red pilled by this. So I do see some optimism and then you have like groups like the young Americans against socialism rising up to tell stories about people who have escaped socialist countries and show how there is an alternative to the big government status quo, if you will, and that trying to engage these experiments also are, is a disaster in the making. So I'm not completely pessimistic, but I do understand like the overall process that has been taking place and that we, we should learn from our enemies, if you will, and fight back using certain tactics at work and in terms of how we spread our ideas and the battles we, we choose along the way. You know, you mentioned the fecklessness of the right, and I love that word feckless, by the way. Um, and it, it's interesting to me because, you know, through my work at the Tenth Amendment Center, uh, it seems like the mainstream political right, you know, conservatism, Inc., as some people like to call it, uh, is dominated by boomers. And while they fancy themselves as being on the right, uh, they embrace a lot of this same type of, of economic interventionism and welfare state. I mean, they won't admit it, but, uh, you know, talk about uh, doing something to uh, deal with Social Security, which is not only uh, unconstitutional, but a Ponzi scheme and an economic disaster in the making, or Medicaid, Medicare. Uh, you know, they love these programs. So it's almost like, uh, you know, they've, uh, instead of trying to conserve traditional liberalism, which would be, you know, true free markets, laissez-faire. Uh, they're trying to conserve like a 1950s, 1960s American welfare state, which is, uh, you know, just uh, it's democratic socialism's little brother. So it's no wonder that uh, the right hasn't mounted a, a real strong defense of free markets because a lot of people who claim to be on the right don't really believe in it either. Um, which is which is kind of sad. Along the same lines, you put out an interesting email about uh, kind of a divide between males and females when it comes to uh, the embracing socialism. Women tend to be much more um, uh, sympathetic towards kind of the left and these uh, interventionist ideas. Why do you think that is? I think this is definitely more Western specific, especially with the rise of like so-called cultural Marxism after a lot of the left has seen like how like the Soviet Union, a lot of these other countries, even Venezuela as well, collapse, they've learned that the traditional garrison state top-down total control model of like totalitarian socialism may not be very easy to implement in first world countries. So they've kind of subtly pivoted towards more identity politics. And that's mm -hmm. like feminism, which has completely taken root in a lot of college departments where even a lot of so-called women on the right will agree with certain types of programs that a lot of feminists push. And it's become 
completely dominant. And I think it's very much environmental in the sense that ever since we've had a much more interventionist state, they have been able to prospect better with women through identity politics. It's also the same thing with a lot of minorities. It's a very similar dynamic. They use a lot of this demagoguery through all these social programs, and they also construct very compelling yet false narratives of like victimhood that sell very well in today's political climate. So you have those factors that can explain that trend. Yeah, I did a podcast. Uh, I have a podcast called Godarchy, and I did one. Actually, it was the last episode I did, I did on identity politics and I'm particularly focusing on racial politics. And it really frustrates me uh, because it, it's a it's a beautiful political tool. But it's insidious in terms of the way it warps our minds in, in, in the way we think about people. Politicians love identity politics because you can lump a group of people who are only really similar based on a superficial characteristic such as skin color or gender and make them think that they are all the same and they all have the same interest. And then a politician can use that as a uh, – as a tool and, and make them think, oh, this guy cares about my group, therefore he cares about me. Well, first off, they, no politician cares about you. And in the second place, that group is a, is a false construct. And I use this example a lot. My, my wife is African-American, and she grew up in rural West Virginia. And she has more in common with a white, quote-unquote, hillbilly in Appalachia than she does with a kid that grew up in the uh, inner city of South Chicago. Um, the only thing they have in common is, is their skin color. Now, it's absurd to say that they're, they're going to think the same and have the same interests and the same idea, but people will say, oh, well, they're both black, so therefore they're the same group. And it's just really, uh, it's, it's really frustrating and insidious. And it reminds me of what uh, uh, Ron Paul said, you know, uh, racism is just a, a crass form of collectivism. Um, and, and unfortunately, politicians have seized on that. And so... That's a little side rant uh, on my part because the identity politics stuff drives me absolutely crazy. Let me ask you one more question, kind of big picture. Why does economic interventionism fail? I would say it fails because of the fact that it completely disregards the notion of a private property and by extension the signaling mechanisms of the price system, especially when you look at price controls. And and then it creates like second and third order effects that most people don't realize immediately, but they start to take root mm-hmm. in the medium to long term. And I think that it's a case of the state trying to play God and coming to grips with reality that the laws of economics are very strong and they will eventually correct themselves. And that correction is generally going to be very unsavory for most of the populace. But that's what happens when you have politicians that try to overreach uh, the bounds of the Constitution and try to like essentially plan an economy. I did an analogy. uh, This has been several years ago, but talking about prices, you know, prices are a signal. And I said, when you start tinkering with the price system, 
it would be like going into a neighborhood and changing all the road signs around. You know, put, changing where the road signs are on different streets and people would get lost. They wouldn't know where they were. And that's exactly what happens when the government tinkers with prices. We see it really clearly with the Federal Reserve, the way it tinkers with interest rates, which is yes. simply the price of money. Uh, it creates malinvestments. It, it entices people to borrow when they shouldn't be borrowing. And like you said, eventually these things revert back to the mean. And when that happens, the bubbles pop, uh, the economy crashes. You have 2008 uh, I, I think we have a, a 2008 looming again on the future, although a lot of people still haven't admitted that. So uh, I think you're absolutely right. It destroys the uh, it destroys the price system. And and again, I think people should always remember the moral aspect of it, too. You know, if, if you truly believe in private property, if we believe that, uh, you know, we shouldn't be coercing people in, in, into doing things against their will, uh, that's the 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 moral side of the equation. So, um, yeah. I've got one more question for you, and, and this one's just a fun one, but it's very important to me. Mm -hmm. So you do a lot of writing. When you're typing on a computer, do you put two spaces after a period? Two spaces after? Yes, I do. Do you really? Oh, oh this wounds me. Don't do that. <laughs> it, 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 drives, it drives editors nuts. You know, you know this. It's a holdover from typewriters because back in the day, typewriters the 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 font, so to speak, was different, and uh, so that it, it would often look like the sentences ran together. So they taught you in typing to make the two spaces, but you don't have to do that on a computer. Yeah, I still have that kind of a habit, but <laughs> generally my editing, I I fix it myself. But it's kind of been something that's been programmed. Did you take typing me, but... at some point? Did somebody teach you typing? Yes. Yeah. 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 That's. that's uh, I still like. It still lingers, but I've generally I generally correct it after I do my edits. Oh, I got you. All right. So well, that's okay. You're you're at least aware of it. There's this is a this is a huge argument. In fact, a, a lot of these I ask I've asked every guest that I've had on this show that question, and uh, for the most part, most people it, there's kind of a divide. It's people anybody who has had typing, you know, a formal typing instruction. They'll put the two space because that was driven into your head, so it's hard to break that habit. But uh, I've had some some roaring debates in the comment sections of some of these videos about uh, about the double spacing, and I, some people just say you absolutely should do it, and think I'm the devil. So <laughs> before we uh, before we go, uh, take a second and let people know where to uh, find you on the internet, how to sign up for your uh, email list. Like I said, that's something people want to do, and uh, where they can find your uh, writing and whatnot. Okay, I'm generally most active on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Jose Alnino, and my Facebook page is Jose Alnino as well. To subscribe to my email newsletter, it's josealnino.com forward slash newsletter, and you can also reach me via email at joseninopolitics at gmail.com. Cool. Well, definitely connect with Jose because he's a, a wealth of information. And we haven't really touched on this because that's not really the scope of this show, but uh, he has also been very involved in the uh, right to keep and bear arms. And uh, he describes himself as a no-compromise 
uh, gun rights advocate, which I love. And if you're interested in that subject, I did an interview with Jose for the 10th Amendment Center that we published not too long ago. I'll link to that in the show notes page as well if you want to uh, hear us talk about guns and, and uh, the right to keep and bear arms. But Jose, thank you so much for taking the time to be on and, and sharing a little bit of your insight. Uh, I think it's interesting uh, hearing from somebody who, who firsthand is experienced, you know, and your family's experienced the, uh, the effects of uh, socialism. So I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much, Mike. It was right. a pleasure. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. You've been watching It's Your Dime, an interview series presented by Shift Gold. For more information on investing in gold and silver, talk to a Shift Gold precious metal specialist today at 1-888-GOLD-160. That's 1-888-465-3160. Or visit us on the web at shiftgold.com. You can keep up with all of the latest precious metals news at shiftgold.com news. And tune in each week to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap Podcast. This is your host, Mike Meharry. I appreciate you watching, and I'll talk to you again next time.